Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic body-based practices with so many real life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to barrytesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Hi everyone, welcome to the Art of Money community. Today I have the honor of interviewing Rachel J. Robichotti, and I want to share her bio with you. Um, it's important for me to let you all get a glimpse of who she is, the pioneering and deep work that she's been doing for uh, coming on two decades, and I'm just really honored to have her. So here's a little bit about her story. She is the founder of Robichotti and Philipson. She founded it in 2002, 2004. It is an all-women diverse team, and, continue, and she continues to head the firm as one of its two partners, directing overall policy, strategy, and communications. In addition, Rachel still serves as wealth manager and specializes in advising clients on philanthropy, legacy giving, employment negotiations, business transitions, and complex equity compensation. As a young queer woman of color in an industry that is dominated by older white men, the odds were against Rachel when she started her own firm. Nonetheless, she was already well-versed in the finance industry and had proven her skills by being awarded the top financial planner at MetLife Securities in 2003. In addition, Rachel built up resilience when she was diagnosed with and beat cancer at the age of 22. Her strong, self of, her strong sense of self, fierce determination, and desire to give back to the community encouraged her to forge a new path. When she started Robichotti and Philipson, Rather than following the industry standard practice of excluding emotions from finance, Rachel chose to integrate emotional intelligence into financial decision-making, which we love. The firm continues to use the model she developed, this progressive approach of inviting a client's emotions into conversations has strategically informed key financial decisions for countless happy clients. 
She's a founding member of Women's Wealth Initiative, a nationwide group of female wealth managers. Rachel is especially proud of serving as a role model and creating pathways for more women and people of color in personal finance. She currently serves as treasurer of the board of directors of LPAC, which is a lesbian political action committee. In addition, Rachel's the member is a member of the Funding Queerly Giving Circle, one of the largest community-based LGBTQ plus funders in the United States. Rachel is a math nerd, natural medicine enthusiast, and passionate community activist. When she's not cuddling her cat, promoting promoting social justice, or creating spreadsheets, Rachel can be found cooking nutrient-dense food or meditating in her sunny apartment in San Francisco. Welcome, Rachel. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, we write those bios, um, but we don't go back and read them very often. Um, one one small, it, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear your your work life read back to you. Um, it is. One, it one is. Addition, Go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I would say is that um, I'm now the treasurer on the board of directors of Resource Generation, and mm-hmm. which is very an organization very near and uh, dear to my heart. That's an organization for young people with wealth who are committed to the equitable distribution of land, wealth, and power. And um, it's just, it's been a real honor and delight to serve on that board. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. I've, I've heard of them. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have been a pioneering woman in the financial planning field from an extremely early age. Um, I saw this stat. I, I wonder what the updated version of this is that more than 68% of U.S. financial advisors are male and 77% are white, and this was done in 2016. Mm -hmm. Do you know what the updated stats are? I don't have, I don't know them off the top of my head, but um, the, what we've been talking about in the industry recently is how it's actually gotten worse. So, um, I don't know the specific numbers, but I know that those numbers have actually, um, there are actually more white men in the field than there were when that study was done. So, yeah. So, let's go back to the beginning. I have so many questions for you about socially responsible investing, about social justice investing. When I went to your website, it was the first time I heard that, um, about retirement and you know, how people can participate at all, you know, in investing at all different levels. But I'd love to hear a bit of your own personal story and how you grew up and a little bit about your money story and how did you choose to become a financial planner? Well, so I chose to be a financial planner when I was in college. I actually worked full-time uh, near the end of college and kind of went straight into the industry, which is how I have 20, experience, 20 years of experience this year, um, despite being 40 years old. Um, I actually ended up making that decision. It was the result of a long arc of my life that had at its center poverty. Um, so I, I grew up in Oroville, 
which is in Northern California. It's a rural agricultural community. And um, there's, a, there's a small black population um, that when I was growing up was still kind of de facto segregated and, and kind of relegated into the south side of town. Um, and we were, my mother, my older sister and I, um, I have two younger siblings as well that kind of came along a little bit later, but my mother, uh, sister and I were kind of the primary family unit growing up and um, there was an awareness of the fact that we were all girls, all women, um, all female, and there was an awareness of the fact that we were black and there was an awareness of poverty, and those all seemed to have something to do with one another from when I was a very young age. And so my kind of interest in what made the world work um, kept coming back to, oh, when things don't go well or when they do go well, there seems to be some relationship to money. And that relationship to money seems to have something to do with the fact you know that we're that we're female and that we're black, and so um, those themes stayed with me. And I think early on, and in certain ways, I decided that the reason I was poor was because those things were true. And um, Ed, there's a, a personality that I developed that was um, probably generally more um, masculine personality, kind of more aggressive, um, and um, kind of less inclined toward the feeling space. Um, and, and of course, I want to be clear and say the things that are generally um, ascribed to masculinity, I should say. Um, and I certainly, through trial and error, learned to speak standard American English. Uh, because I didn't want it to be known that I was a black person just, you know, before someone even met me, kind of on the telephone, even. Um, and so kind of throughout my childhood um, and, you know, into my teenage years, I ended up going to college when I was 15. I graduated early um, because, it, because it was really necessary for me to, yeah. Um, what do you mean by it was really necessary? Yeah, how, why was it necessary, um, and how were you able to do that so young? You, you obviously were incredibly mm -hmm. smart, and how, how did that happen? So I skipped a couple of grades, and okay. uh, is the kind of short story, but the, the longer story is that um, uh, both of my parents suffer from pretty severe mental illness, and my mother was in a space um, where she was in a manic period, um, and we were, things were like not going well. And I think at that age, I had enough intelligence and enough agency to believe that I could make a better life for myself. So I just did accelerated classes um, and took a test, uh, the test that we have here in California that will give you a diploma provided that you have um, certain coursework um, completed. So yeah, it felt necessary because I w was continuing to experience the trauma and the um, and the extreme difficulty of being part of my family, and um, and it felt to me that I really needed to make a break with my family and in a lot of ways certain parts of my culture in order for my life to be different. 
and I have really mixed feelings about that. Um, yeah. And so graduating was a way out. I was going to go to college. Okay. Yeah, so that I could make a better life for myself and for my family as well. But I kind of, I, I did feel a sense of needing to get out in order to do that. Yeah, and mixed feelings around I have to leave my community and say goodbye. Mm -hmm. And there was probably a lot of grief around that and why can't I stay here and create a good life right. for myself. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And some of them... Some of those mixed feelings, yeah, we're also about, um, I think it's actually true that if I had stayed living at home, um, we were going to be living back in Oroville again, we had moved kind of to a slightly larger city, um, town, and we were going to be moving back to Oroville, but I felt that... Um, like I kind of needed to get away from being locked into that community um, and all of the oppression, the interlocking systems of oppression that um, were kind of stopping me from getting where I wanted to go. I really felt strongly that I needed to kind of get away. It, it, to make it very simple, like my side of town was scary. There was violence or drugs. It was dirty. We didn't have like some, in some places, we just didn't even have sidewalks, but, like, it was dirtier than the places where white people were able to live. And um, and I, at a young age, I just started to associate, like, the things that were nicer and felt better to me with, um, with, with whiteness and standard American English and education. Um, and, you know, they were very synonymous with whiteness. And what I, I think for a long time, I believed that, that, it was it was kind of our fault that we were poor. We were like that black people didn't try hard enough or something. And this was before I really um, this was before I really got a clear understanding of our actual history within this country and the very systemic nature of um, how things actually work. Um, and so it's been this journey of saying, oh, I have to get away from this and I want to be like less female and less black in order to kind of get where I'm going. And then um, at the same time coming full circle to realizing that um, like I no longer see being those things as something that's in any way bad. There, It's actually those are things that are very important parts of my identity. And I can um, see the ironic truth that actually communi black communities and communities of color really are in a worse situation because of this gargantuan racial wealth divide that we have um, in the country. And um, it's probably true that if ha had I stayed there, I probably would not have been able to continue on in college and I probably would have not have been able to make a life that was full of more safety and the things that, that I wanted more of in my life. But what I didn't realize is that I didn't have to stop being who I was in order to make that life for myself. Um, like I didn't, so it's been a slow process of reintegrating and really finding my, um, not really finding but like rediscovering um, the parts of me that are very deeply identified 
um, with the softer aspects of being um, a woman and that are really deeply identified with being with being a black person because I had just coded them so strongly with all the negative things that were happening in my life. So I feel like it's only now, at this in the last five to ten years, kind of at this point in my life, that um, that coding is kind of starting to be untangled, where I can kind of be what I've always been. But, um, yeah, and kind of like not blaming my family anymore for being poor, who's been huge. Um, I think I blamed them for a long time. And I, I just had a conversation with my mom my sister the other day, my sister, you know, had lost her job, and she was like, oh, sissy, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. I know I, it worries you when I lose my job. I wish, you know, we all weren't such a burden. And I said, you know, I said, for a long time, even if I never said it out loud, I always believed that it was kind of our fault that we were poor and that things, traumatic things were happening. And I said, you know, it's, and now I realize I was wrong. I was wrong. This system wasn't set up to to have us do well. So, um, so I don't I don't blame you for the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm yeah I'm hearing the long journey. I'm hearing the deep work. I'm hearing the arc. I know you just passed, or you stepped into the forty fortieth year, fortieth decade threshold, which is wonderful. But you were fifteen. Um, you were. Yeah. You were a teenager, you know, um, making a huge decision. It's amazing to me you had that much agency at that time um, and chose for survival to leave. Um, and we're trying to survive, many of us, during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, was it painful for you um, or did it just feel this is what's right? I have to leave here in order to get out or go beyond what's happening in my family of origin, their money story, their money situation, I have to. Because a lot of people, when they're leaving their family of origin or wanting to make more, starting to make more, um, they f- they feel excluded from the family. But that was a mm-hmm. choice you made at that time. Anything more about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess the I would say I I don't know how much agency it, I had per se. I mean, but certainly there was some of that, um, and I think the agency came partially from having a really disabled mother who was my primary caregiver. So if certain things were going to happen, I had to make them happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, like going, making sure there were groceries at age six, going into the grocery store to get food and, and you know, convincing them to take the food stamps for me, even though I was a tiny six-year-old kid. Um, those those types of things create a certain experience of uh, things that may seem impossible can be done. So I think there was some agency. There was also just a ton of fear. I was living in a kind of constant state of of threat, and yeah. so fear is a huge motivator. I, um, it's funny, I, on several occasions people have said, wow, you've just taken such risks, you've been such a visionary. I, you know, I get that sometimes. And, um, and I, it's funny, I, I've said, you know, I'm far less 
uh, I'm far less prone to, or, or what to say, I'm more risk averse than anyone actually knows. I've actually, I've felt like when I've taken risks, I didn't have other choices. And so I think that taking risks for people who are in minoritized groups is is kind of a different ball game. Yeah, so it's like there was fear. So it wasn't really that it was entirely agency. There was a whole lot of fear and a, yeah. and a sense that there weren't other options. Hmm. Okay. So trauma, fear, and um, you got to move. You got you got to get out of there yeah. to survive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was and survival. Yeah. It was, okay. and I had to kind of deaden my, I had to deaden my heart in order to leave my family and I actually wasn't in touch with them for about the first six months and I was very cautious about being in touch with them for the first few years. Um, I still financially supported and, and supported them also in some other more practical ways, um, but I was very cautious about how much of my time and energy I was putting toward helping them because I knew that if I didn't put time and energy toward my education and my career, that I would help them now, but I would not actually be able to help them long term. Yeah. So, so there was a lot of deadening of the heart because otherwise, you know, all of the time would have gone to them. Yeah. yeah. And, so what yeah. has been your journey back to <clears throat> your heart, yourself, who you are, um, who you are proud to be, and to your emotions, what has that journey been? Well, a lot of of that journey, and it's still it's still in progress. But a lot of that journey has been about um, feeling safe enough to open, so I kind of reopened my heart. It, it wasn't until just a few years ago that I actually was in a place where I felt self-sufficient. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Meaning I wasn't having to, I didn't have to have a side hustle. I wasn't having to rob, you know, Peter to pay Paul, as they say. I. It was only just a couple of years ago that I really feel like not, not that, you know, there's so much excess money around but just that I have enough and I I have I'm sad about I'm actually sad about the fact that so much has shifted for me with the experience of having enough it's almost as though I could kind of once there was enough in those um the kind of fear the constant and overlay of fear that's that's running things when there isn't enough once that was um quieted I could actually start to hear like kind of the the longing of my heart for my family hmm. and my community and it I don't think there wasn't one big event per se except for getting to a place where I had enough and I think as I approached that place my heart became more and more open and I really I didn't realize that's what was happening until I had gotten to a place where I was like oh I feel like I have enough oh look at how different my relationship with my family is so you know and that feels I feel sad about that in the I I just wonder what the world would I just wonder what the world would be like 
would just yeah. even what this country would be like if each person had enough. How would that transform our relationships with other human beings? Because it's and similar to my saying that being black and being female were parts of being very poor. Like the, there was actual truth in that. Not having enough really was a part of me, my not being able to open my heart. And I guess the, just the truth of that, it's difficult for it to settle in me. It doesn't feel like it's the way things should be in order for us to all be the fullest expressions of ourselves as human beings. So that is some of the deeper work that you're doing. And I want to um, unravel that a little bit more and stay with you more and what you're sharing because I, I want to understand it more and talk about it more. But even recently, I, I cannot stand the word deserve. Um, although the other day <laughs> on, on a hike, you know, what we deserve is to have enough for shelter mm-hmm. and food and clothing. And as humans, we all deserve that. Do we deserve the extra, extra, extra? I can't, you know... I can't stand that. I deserve to be on this vacation. I deserve, you know, to have mm-hmm. this boat. I deserve mm-hmm. to have whatever really fancy clothes. No, but as humans, we all deserve to have enough in all of our basic mm-hmm. needs met. That's what I was walking around with on a hike the other day. And here you are. You've been on this journey yourself and I want to hear more because you've clearly been growing a business for years and have had a profitable profitable business for years. And, yes, it takes years to hit sustainability, and that means something different for each of us. So, mm-hmm. And it's about the numbers and it's not. So, right, this is, you know, mm-hmm. and those studies around 50,000 or 75,000 and then all of a sudden happiness mm-hmm does increase once you hit that. It depends on where you live in the world. So was this about... It depends on how many dependent family members you have. Yes, true. That too, what's your family, how much... Uh, mm-hmm. Right, are you supporting a whole family back home, mm-hmm. somewhere else, like you're doing? Exa- okay, all right. So fill this out a bit more about... Because um, for years you've been successful growing a profitable business, what shifted into enoughness for you and what did that mean in the numbers and what did that mean internally and how did you start feeling a different level of safety inside your body? Well, let's see. I think, um, so I got a divorce in 2016. Um, I had a wealthy partner. And um, and I realized that while I had this wealthy partner and there was more than enough money, like my career was going well, her career was going well, um, that while that was true, I still knew that I kind of couldn't afford the life that we had on my own. And so I think that was it's interesting how the actual amount of money versus what I have the the ability to sustain um, myself. Um, but it, almost you could, we could have any amount of money, right, that was under the auspices of that marriage, and it wouldn't have been the same as really feeling like I had enough. So my income just wasn't high enough. I started a firm 
without coming from a wealthy family and without having the connections that many people who traditionally have had access to wealth and class privilege have. You know, lots of people get into this industry um, managing their own money, managing their family's money. Um, having spoken to the person in the family who's frequently male um, about what it's like to manage money. And um, I came in with book knowledge and a lot of experiential learning um, by working under some other folks in the industry, but I didn't have any of my own networks or my own money to start with. So I started off in a significant amount of debt, and paying the interest on that debt you know, eats up the cash flow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not having the networks just means that my business grew slower. I had to kind of prove myself with multiple clients who were willing to take a risk on me, not having had, you know, not having any real track record, and then um, have that grow over time. Um, so, yeah, I remember when um, this wonderfully um, smart and kind. A uh, fellow in our industry came to visit, and he was just talking about, you know, the first, the first ten million is the hardest, and the first five million is, you know, pretty hard to, and uh, which is true in our in the um, investment management world too. And it's funny because we once we then he ended up saying something that let us know he had just been in the industry for five years, and I think at that point, like our our business was like twelve years old or something, and I was just aghast like we didn't actually we have 140 million that we manage now but um like and he had been in less than five so like where he i think he was in like three years and we were just kind of imagining where we were at three years kind of into the industry even and um you know he just had a different background different network different asset base that he's starting with and so it just took a long time for the business to earn enough revenue for me to have an income that made me feel like I could sustain a good enough standard of living on my own. Okay. Um, you were bootstrapping a financial planning firm and, you know, going into debt. You know, you were you were able to get. Mm-hmm. So you you did have good enough credit scores, right, to mm-hmm. be able to get some debt. Was it personal debt or were you able to get? Oh yes. Bank loans. Okay. So personal debt, personal um, debt, and um, and some bank loans as well, but yeah, primarily personal. Okay, okay. So huge modeling on your end for bootstrapping and growing a business without the luxury of family money, family connections, and so on. Mm So it's it's taken yeah. longer and it's been slower. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also think and there's uh, I I also think that um, it's taken a while to get to and you know we work very hard right now on our impact investing platform. It's a newer thing, so it requires more work. But um, prior to starting that, um, getting to a place where I didn't have to work, it. it Depletingly large number of hours was um, very difficult, and I think some of that was just owing to the fact that I was walking around with this understanding that I have to do twice as well as everybody else to be seen as 
you know, as doing quality work. So because you know, people looked at me and they were like, "You don't look at all like what I think a financial advisor or investment manager looks like." So I had to kind of I had to prove myself. So it was also just it took longer, but it also probably literally took more work hours. Right. Like not right. good reinforcement for the perfectionism I continue to to try to heal from. <laughs> okay. So I have a few questions in there, you know, because you're saying it wasn't just twice as many hours, but you also had to perform twice as, as well. Um your industry is all about performance, right? Well, it's you know it's a big part of it. It's not all of it. Um, so you had well, to I'm, do that. Meaning more, it took it was a, it took longer for the firm to get into a position where I could earn enough money. So just like the number of years, the length of time was longer. But I was saying the number of hours that went into that length of time was also higher. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I've heard yeah. a lot of people of color say, you know, they were told early on you have to work twice as hard, you know, to get where yeah. the average white person or white male can get, you know, or even more than mm-hmm. that, even more than twice as hard. Um, can we – okay, there's a few things here. One is um, – so it's been this long, slow, bootstrapping you know, personal debt, it's just taken longer. Um, And also at the same time, you've been supporting your family members. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's been about the numbers and getting your business to the level that it's, you know, that it's in 20 years later, 15 years later for this business. And what was the inner emotional work that you had to do and what was the shift that happened there? Because I know you've been doing a lot of emotional intelligence work, somatic therapy. So mm-hmm. I know that there's been work and shifts there to help you feel a different level of safety, or has it just been years of working on this and then also finally working on that equation I've heard you talk about, which I talk about too, the equation of money, time, energy, family, health, and uh, learning how to do that well so that you're not working crazy hours, so that you're not overworking and so you're not overgiving, so that you're not over everything. I think I just mm-hmm. asked five five different questions in there. <laughs> Did that make sense? <laughs> well, let's see. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And let's let's just see what what's showing up as um a response. You know, the thing that feels like it's really on my mind is um I remember when we were in a much smaller office many years ago, and it dawned on me that um, the business model that we had wasn't working partially because the services that we were delivering cost so much more than we were charging clients for. And, And I remember really kind of understanding that and sensing the resistance in my body of charging what the services were actually worth. Um, I remember feeling that resistance kind of in my solar plexus, in my my upper arms, almost like plates. And I think for me, uh, and this goes back to my risk aversion, for me those were insurance policies. Those were um, 
a bunch of insurance policies that I was kind of taking out on those client relationships of, well, if they always feel like they're getting much more than they pay for, um, then they'll stay. And then the the revenue, although it may be too low, but the revenue that we will receive from them, like the, the consistency of that revenue and that loyalty mattered more to me than charging what I was worth. Um, and I believe that that kind of risk aversion comes from a scarcity model where I just didn't have enough um, yeah. for many years in my life. And so it felt really scary to say, no, I'm sorry, I you know, charges you this amount for our services and it needs to double or triple. No, number one, like you take a high chance of losing a particular client. But um, but also it's like, oh, I don't have that built-in insurance policy that they owe, they owe me in a certain way. Yeah, and I just remember recognizing that and realizing that that was a, a way I was balancing out all the risks I had to take in my life was kind of like by reducing risk and taking out all these insurance policies, but it was killing me. I was getting really, um, I was really not well in a number of ways, and I had learned um, earlier in my 20s what overworking um, had done. I really felt like the level of stress in my life is what um, was a primary reason why I had had gotten cancer, and um and I remember at that point being like, oh, working like this, not healthy. I'm going to have to actually deal with the uncertainty of charging what it actually costs to do this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think just incrementally surviving the fear of charging what the, you know what was really appropriate for the services I think that that slowly built up a certain amount of resilience mm. over time. So that's what's you mostly also, showing up for me. Yeah. Pardon me. You also you also let go of a good chunk of clients at some point that mm-hmm. the relationships didn't feel as good as the clients you kept, and that was another yes. boundary or line in the sand. At some point, yes. like this isn't feeling good and right. It's off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a scary time, too. We had um, and a kind of a similar similar kind of emotional set of things was happening behind the scenes. Like, we were basically still working with these clients that were such a huge emotional and sometimes time drain on us that it really didn't feel, those didn't feel like they were mutually beneficial, valuable relationships, um, but were scared of losing that revenue. So um, it just got to the point, I think, where some client uh, had ended up uh, yelling at one of our staff people. And um, growing up with a lot of um, physical abuse in the environment, I just have a thing about, I don't know, yelling. Um, Mm -hmm. I still have some reactivity to that. It's much less than it used to be. But I think, yeah, a client had yelled at one of our our staff folks and – and I just literally took the phone from the staff person and fired the client. And it was yeah. just like, that behavior is unacceptable. We won't be working with you any longer. We'll send you the necessary paperwork to yeah. terminate the relationship. And I just remember realizing that it shouldn't have to get to yelling um, mm-hmm. and that people have a lot of emotions around their money, um, but it shouldn't mm-hmm. have to get 
it shouldn't have to get to yelling. And I was just realizing how much that took out of um, my employee and how much that took out of me and, um, and at that time my business partner as well. And we said, you know, we really just actually can't afford to keep having relationships that don't feel truly mutually supportive. And um, so we fired 25, what ended up being 25% of our practice. Um, and the sole criteria was who do we, like, cringe when we see their caller ID coming up? Like, you know, who do we cringe when we see their name show up on our email inbox? Um, it was really scary. Um, at the time, uh, it you know, brought our revenue down, or not our um, assets under management down by several million. And, um, and interestingly enough, it was such a breath of fresh air that um, and our work lives changed so much just from that 25% of the practice changing that um, that was one of our kind of highest um, additional assets under management years that we had ever had yeah. that very same year. So it, we not only made that those assets back, but then we also grew tremendously that particular year. I think because we were all happy, like we mm -hmm. loved the clients right, that we had, and we had room to take on more clients that felt that way. But that was, it was a scary thing. Uh, it was a scary thing, and um, and it was a, an important part of taking care of ourselves. We had, yeah, started to have some health challenges, too, related to the extreme stress. So we were like, okay, it's time. I hear healthy boundaries. I hear adjusting your business model, you know. Um mm -hmm. I hear just more and more, that was a leap, you know, but all these incremental adjustment steps and then some leaps in there um, in crafting the business model environment to a place where you all could be happy, right? And right. it sounds like that all helped also um, shift you into being able to feel safety, I keep coming back to your word because I, it's such an important feeling and experience and quality. Um, mm -hmm. And to move into a place where you're starting to feel enough safety in yourself and your body and your life and the sustainability of your business that your heart is opening more. Will you yes. describe how that feels? Um, oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My heart, I, I feel where I feel my heart show up is actually in kind of this top part of my chest all the way across from kind of like the the, um, the front part of my chest from one shoulder to the next. There's a, there's an almost glowing peacefulness that is, um, that's expansive and warm, and um, and it's pretty much the antithesis of the way that I feel when um, I'm really worried and stressed, and you know there isn't enough. Um, some of that has to do with money, but some of that is also, as my old mentor used to say, some of it's just an inside job. 
Um, Because there have been times when there has been more than enough, but I will still find something to worry about. It's almost as though the worry is already there, and I'm finding something for it to land on because I'm so used to it being there. So some of it's also habit as well, and stopping and taking a moment to be in the reality of this moment, um, which is another thing in my spiritual practice that's brought me, um, I think, that sense of peace. And I think what I was looking for in safety is recognizing that in each moment, um, everything really is okay. Like things are okay just as they are right now. Um, And that that's mostly my experience. And it doesn't mean I'll never have pain or traumatic events, but that's not the vast majority of my experience. I'm very grateful for that. And being able to be present to that is um, is also something that heals for me. When you have trauma, you know, kind of on alert, hypervigilant yeah. about what could yeah. happen in the future. And presence, and you know, like presence to strangely like non-trauma. I remember um, Thich Nhat Hanh said, he said that a uh, there's bliss available in every moment. If you've ever had a toothache, you'll know what I mean. You know, he said that having a non-toothache when you've had a toothache can be bliss. And it's, it's, I feel similarly about the grip of fear around uh, safety and, and having enough. So it's like, oh, it's really okay. Like I'm not in physical danger. Like, you know, nothing, no, nothing horrible, is, nothing unbearable is happening right now. Um, being present to that on a consistent basis has its own healing and kind of reinforcing quality for me. Beautiful. And and how has this shifted your relationship with your family? You already said there's a new level Mm -hmm. of forgiveness happening. There's, yeah, please share more about how that has shifted or is shifting. Yeah. It's interesting. The forgiveness that I'm experiencing, it, it, I certainly have forgiven them for some things um, here and there. Um, mostly the forgiveness has happened toward myself. Yeah. Uh, like I forgive myself for having decided that it was their fault they were poor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've learned that when something goes wrong, you know, when I decided, anyway, it's gone wrong. Um, you know, when something unfortunate happens, um, I tend to automatically assume that I am somehow responsible. Um, and aside from, you know, we shouldn't beat ourselves up as much as we tend to. So aside from that whole way of looking at things, just the very fact that I assume that it's my fault, it gives me the idea that I can make it different. I have control, right, over how this goes. So when I made the story about poverty be an internal story about the kind of um, deservingness of my family based on, you know, were they were they not trying hard enough, you know, were and were they as black people not doing enough to get them out of the situation that black people are in or that, you know, single mothers and, you know, families of women are in. Um, it it just it gave me it gave me the idea that like I could change it, and I, I'm given where I am now. I understand that all of 
my past experiences and those decisions I've made have um, created the moment that I'm in now that I'm very grateful for. So I don't necessarily um, feel like that was a horrible thing. Apparently that's what I needed in order to motivate myself. Like, oh, this is really because I haven't worked hard enough yet and the people in my family haven't worked hard enough yet. And in reality, just coming face-to-face with the reality of of the fact that this country is built on poverty in so many ways, like impoverishing people of land, of labor, of freedom, um, keeping a permanent kind of underclass of poor people. Coming to terms with that has allowed me to really um, see that it's not their fault, and that has been a real a process of that's been a process of forgiving myself for having made them wrong and having made myself wrong for so long. Yeah. I did a whole interview with Sandra Sandra Davis, financial mm-hmm. planner, on this topic, and we talked about the history of black people in America, about women and women needing to be the primary breadwinners and um recently in the last year I read or listened to the whole Tanahisi Coates um mm-hmm. um about reparations and learned so much about land issues and Jim Crow and and everything that has been done and happened to the black mm-hmm. community. Um since they were brought over as slaves and since um, after that, since you know they were given mm-hmm. supposed free, you know, supposed freedom, and so what I'm hearing is that you you believed that you believed what the system had created and the, and what the cultural oh, yeah. stereotypes were, and oh yeah, yeah. So you if were I, yeah. if if I was going to if I was going to be in that white world that I believed was better. Um, it included adopting that narrative about, you know, the black people just don't try hard enough, aren't whatever it is, smart enough, try hard enough, et cetera. And um, it's really just not true. It's redlining and it's Jim Crow and it's mass incarceration and it's um, these various interlocking systems of oppression that – Certainly, there's a big negative effect on black people, but in reality, um, I I feel and I feel like I've experienced the. Um, it really has a huge negative effect on white people, especially yeah. poor white people, because poor white people, it, you know, it 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 gives them whiteness, which it allows them to. Um, kind of buy into and be part of a system where there's such massive wealth inequality or inequity, I should say. So, um, and and I experienced that growing up, um, and I can kind of see it even now. I was, it's really funny. I was at the, um, I was at this advisor summit for impact investors and the Reverend Dr. Barber was there, um, who he's one of the leaders of the poor people's campaign. And I had this experience of uh, he was kind of showing the states where 
basically racist laws had been put in place and Voting Rights Act work had been repealed. Um, and he was also showing where the increases in poverty were, and they were like just overlapping maps of the same states. And there was a certain part of, he was speaking in the macro, um, but what he was speaking to was actually my personal experience. It's like, you know, the, the white people and the black people didn't live, you know, the poor white people and the poor black people didn't live in the, in the good areas, um, right, of Oroville. Oroville has a lake that's a huge recreational center. I've never seen it. Black people didn't go there, and the poor white people didn't go there either. But what's really interesting is that if the poor black people and the poor white people got together in Oroville and had created some sort of voting block, maybe things would have been different. But in reality, the like we were segregated from one another, but they were in you know slightly nicer slum-like conditions, and and that was enough to divide. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, it harms us all. That I'm, um, yeah. In, yeah, in the end, it's, uh, yeah. In, in the so end, we, yeah. that's Go actually, ahead. I keep interrupting for you. me, Go what ahead. it's about. No, it's okay. No, it's like, in the end, yes, it's about racism, for sure. And it's also about racism as a tool to maintain, um, to maintain the, the elite's hoarding wealth. Okay. And okay. When 47% of us in the United States don't have enough, um, you know. Yeah. So let's move into okay. that, you know. Yeah, let's move into that. But I do have one last transition question there, which is, mm-hmm. you know, because I see you as someone who is so out there and I'm a black woman, I'm a queer woman, this is who I am, this is my community, my team is incredibly diverse. This is, you know, who, you know, I work with, all folks, but I really want to be supporting people of color. And you're you're mm-hmm. you're so out there and clear and proud of all of this. Um, and I know from what you're sharing, there's been a full journey of denying parts of you, hiding parts of you, or ignoring or rebelling, or um, and then it you know at some point owning them and taking them on and saying this is who I am and this is my lineage and these are the challenging mm-hmm. parts and these are the strengths and um right and mm-hmm. and and taking it you know all back in and owning it all and saying this is who I am and this is who I serve so how did it start to inform um who you wanted to work with and how you work with folks and let's talk about rise and let's talk about social social impact investing and SRI socially responsible investing let's talk about your work in the community and if there's anything you want to say about that that also that transition for you personally of going from you know ignoring denying trying to be white to fit into this white male thing and then at some point saying okay <laughs> this is who I am mm-hmm. this is important to me this is my lineage, this is, you know, and being really open and clear about all of this. Right. It's funny. One of the things that my grandmother used to say very regularly was wherever you go, there you are. So in trying to run away from all of those, you know, all the things in my environment that were bad, like in the end I was still stuck with myself, right? And I still felt like, oh, I might live in better conditions, um, eat better food, 
um, but I still have like kind of that internalized sense of not being enough. And I think that just started to, to wear on me, started to gnaw on me. And learning the history of this country, which very few of us actually ever learn the, the true history of how this country was built and um, learning that history and that kind of gnawing sense that um, basically that internalized racism and sexism was there, um, they kind of slowly worked on me over time. And a meditation practice and being present with reality um, kind of built up a certain amount of resilience to really confront how those things had been internalized within me. Um, and and in, my, in our work, we do a lot of work that centers gender equity, uh, racial justice, um, and uh, the issues that impact um, marginalized communities. Um, so we have an impact investing platform that's called RISE, um, Return on Investment and Social Equity. And we um, say that we are practicing social justice investing. Um, we're the ones who coined the term. If you go to socialjusticeinvesting.com, it goes to us. Um, but we, wonderful, um, wonderful. Yeah. It's so important we, if you've coined it. I and think, it was the first time I heard it, yeah. Yeah, I, well, I think it's actually really important because socially responsible is kind of um, – in a certain way, it's not very uh, – there, there's a limit. There's some amount of kind of passivity to it. And with social justice investing, what we, were, what we wanted to do was to take the principles that we had learned from our work as social justice activists, Maya and I, um, and really bring that into the investment world and build bridges between the social justice world um, and the investment world so that when we are attempting to make impact, we're choosing to make impact the, and being led by a community that includes those that are most impacted by systems of oppression. So, for example, um, one way of working on gender equity is to look at the number of women on corporate boards. I think we can all agree that women on, there more women on corporate boards would technically be a good thing. Um, another thing is that it's like easy and countable, um, like the number of women on a, on a board of directors. Um, but when we actually went to the women's community and to the Me Too movement and asked them, and to, to be part of our community and to inform us about how as investors in the industry, as investors in publicly traded companies, how would they have us influence the behavior of those companies? They said, hey, you know, if you can get them to stop this really destructive policy of forcing their employees to, have an, um, to settle sexual harassment claims inside of a private um, arbitration process that favors the employer, that would be great. And um, as a result, uh, we're working in a cross-sector coalition to leverage our power as investors, consumer activists, employee activists, um, to end this practice in publicly traded companies. Um, and so you'll be hearing more about that um, in the fall, uh, that campaign. Um, but th there's a big difference between what investors might believe gender equity means 
right, and thinking about how many women are on the board of directors, which we now have learned um, has very little impact on the well-being of the women who actually work in those companies. And the women's movement and the Me Too movement saying, no, do this. Get the companies to change this policy. And um, we're already making change and liberating the stories of millions of women, right, when there's been sexual harassment. Um, those stories get suppressed by forced arbitration. And when a company ends that policy, women are allowed to talk about what's happened to them, and it brings um, serial um, sexual harassers, um, it brings them to light, which is actually really important and was a big, a big point of kind of what's been happening in the Me Too movement. So that's, kind of, that's an example of some of the work that we do. Um, we are an investment platform. So the Me Too movement said, um, hey, here's how you should screen out you know, the, the companies that you should invest in that are actually better for women versus not. So they, you know, there's that information about which companies are you investing in, but there was also the information about, hey, and as investors in general, if investors banded together and ended this practice, that's what the movement would really want. Um, and so that focus is um, is just an example of what happens when those who are most impacted by systems of oppression have a voice. And it's something that the investing world was not working on prior to now. And um, we already have uh, just under $50 billion in um, assets committed to working on this issue with us. So, And that number is growing. Amazing. Okay, so, you, yeah. so SRI, Socially Responsible Investing, was screening for social and environmental issues, but not touching mm -hmm. on gender, women, sexual harassment, all of this. That's not what it was touching on. Um, and did you come in and start creating these screens? And did I know this came from you, and also I saw in your RISE community you had monthly or quarterly forum meetings where you were mm -hmm. asking activists, social justice folks to participate. They may not be investing. They may not have 100000 or a million to invest, but you invited mm -hmm. everyone to be a part of these forums to have a say in yes. the screens that you want to have put in place. Yeah? Yes, yeah. So when you're looking at um, investing in publicly traded companies, you can um, you can decide, like, on what basis are we measuring them? Like, what's the standard we're measuring them against in order to decide whether or not they're in the portfolio? And those measures are called screens, and those screens can be set by investment managers, which has historically always been the case. The investment manager says, okay, you want an environmental screen? We will um, get information on the tons of carbon that are being emitted by, you know, this company's manufacturing plants, and if it's over this amount, we'll say they're not good for the environment and we will not invest in them. So you're kind of starving um, starving those businesses or industries of capital when you decide not to invest. And so the screens can have an impact in that particular way. Um, but what we realized was that the screens in the before the Great Recession, the screens, the investment managers were doing an okay job. The screens were pretty much what investors thought they were getting. Um, and then after the Great Recession, this huge thing happened where suddenly investment managers who had previously had, for example, fossil fuel-free portfolios had suddenly said, well, let's redefine what the social screen means. Let's say that um, when we screen 
for um, environmental impact, we aren't going to uh, we aren't going to push all of the fossil fuel companies out. What we're going to do is look at all of the fossil fuel companies, see which one is the best actor, and then you know have the ability to include that one in the portfolio. Which is so crazy. They basically went. Okay. It's crazy, right? This so you crazy. look at your portfolio. You're this socially responsible investor. You look at your portfolio. You open it up, and you're like, wait a minute. Exxon's in here? Halliburton's in here? And you learn Exxon, well, Exxon does invest in more clean energy and, you know, does less harm, um, in, according to some measures, to the planet than Shell. And Halliburton, you know, may have better policies in place, Um for their employees, for example, maybe they have better policies in place, or maybe they have less carbon emissions than Lockheed Martin. But they're both making—they're both defense contractors. You know, they're both—you know—yeah, engaged in industries you probably don't want to be a part of. And um, and it was this changing of how the screen was defined that we were aghast at, and so were our clients. And when we took a closer look and said, "How in the world did this happen?" We realized, oh. This happened the way it always happens when those who are most the those who are most impacted um, are not at the table and informing what it means to make change, right? So we realized this in social justice work uh, a while ago, and we still work on it in the social justice world of um, when donors look to fund social justice work, they should not fund what they think works. They should um, they should fund based on those who are most impacted giving them a sense of what will actually make a difference in their lives or on that particular issue. So what we decided was that our social screen would be set by a community that involved the investors themselves. They had never been really asked collectively what they wanted, so the investors themselves, the um, social justice organizations, and allies, as well as investment managers. So we all come together quarterly and we developed the social screen in community, which gives you a very interesting set of things you're screening for. Um, for example, it includes uh, it does not include a screen on alcohol, um, provided that the uh, a company that produces alcohol provided that they pass all of the other screens um, about water usage, pollution, you know, diversity and inclusivity policies, those types of things. Um, but it does include the most comprehensive racial justice screen that exists in the industry because that's what our community said they wanted to screen companies for. Like, what are the companies that are contributing to systemic racism? What are the companies that are um, furthering the private prison industry? What are the companies that are using prison labor, for example? Um, so that's when you have when you ask a community, a social justice community, what it is that they care about, you get a really fascinating set of things to screen for some of which have never been screened for uh, yeah. before now. Hmm. Thank you. And that's just about deciding where the money goes, what you're investing in or not. The community also helps us determine what campaigns will we take on, like this forced arbitration, ending forced arbitration for sexual harassment claims. The the community also says, hey, and, you know, use this as the standard for how you're investing, but also... While you're at it, if you're leveraging your power as investors, like we want you to leverage your power as investors, build coalitions and participate in coalitions that are working on these issues as well. So, so 
on the surface, you know, sometimes my community, some of them can, you know, have family money or inheritance and can start with a million or a few million, you know, and and start working with a financial advising firm. Other people can have the hundred thousand that they saved, or and I think that's a, that's one minimum. That's one of your minimums. So I want to hear what your minimums are, but I also want to hear this. Maybe just stating the obvious, but um, it would be good, I think, for me and our community to hear which you're, you're already sharing with us, which is for those folks in our community who don't have the resources um, to invest, that mm -hmm. they're still able to participate. And right. you're also they're still also reaping reaping, I don't like that word, receiving the benefits um and the and the impact of the work that you're doing because you're working on all of these other issues that other investments haven't been and other financial planners haven't been. Um and the money's going to be moved around and mm -hmm. our lives and situations are going to be improved on all these other levels for people that have been so marginalized. So I'm asking you to state the obvious, but just explain this a little more for someone who would say, I can't invest and I can't be a part of this because I don't have the 100000 or a million or, you know, um, yeah, for that person, yeah. Right. Please share more about that. Yeah, what, well, the, the first thing I'll say is that um, if, folks are interested in investing in RISE, we strategically reduced the um, account minimum. and we're um, So it's 50000 or more um, is the size of like kind of a pool of assets that you need to have in order to invest in RISE. Um, and, uh, and even if you don't have that amount, you're still able to become part of the RISE community. You can go to our website and um, get more information about that. And really the requirement is that you agree to a set of community agreements um, that involve agreements around working in community to leverage the power of investing for the greater good and having investments that reflect that we value well-being for people on the planet. Um, so you can take a look at those agreements on the website, if, it's, if the community is something that um, you are interested in and you want to um, sign a member agreement, then you'll get our invitation to our forums and our you'll get polls where we ask for your input. Um, and so there's an opportunity to participate if what you are interested in is leveraging the power of investing to make the type of change that we want to see in the world. Um, and it's important to differentiate. Um, early on in my career, we started off as a financial planning firm. And um, fin the financial planning also included investment management. And over time, things have really evolved. And making, making portfolios that really reflect social justice values and then also leveraging our power within the investing world and like by being investors to actually make change um, has become so central and important for us that we've chosen to focus more so there. So one thing that folks might not realize is that um, is sometimes when they're working with an investment manager and they invest some money that kind of comes with automatically with some financial planning work, and that's um, that's not what we're able to do at this point because we're focusing 
on um, on leveraging the power of those investments primarily. And that's part of what allows us to have very low account minimums um, is that investing $50,000 doesn't come with what can be very expensive financial planning advice. Um, but we do have lots of resources for people if that's something that they, if, if that's what they need. We have so many people who are interested in just making sure that their investments are supporting social justice, um, that are earning them a reasonable return, both in a financial and social sense. Um, we have so many people that are interested in that, that that's, um, that's really the primary value that we're offering to folks. And we feel, we have mixed feelings about it. We've been financial planners for quite some time. We're very good at it. And sometimes people come to us who have quite complicated situations with multiple trusts and inherited wealth. And we still have wealth managers on, uh, senior wealth managers on staff that um, do the financial planning that's necessary. Um, but it's it's doing the, what's ne the work that's necessary in order to free up those assets so that they can be invested um, and, and rise and invested for social justice. So that's another distinction that I that I wanted to point out as well. Thank you. And you're you're making it available for so many more people, where financial planners have traditionally had such a high minimum get in the door, right? Um, mm -hmm. I'm Especially socially responsible or socially conscious right. ones, yeah. Okay, I see, I see. Mm -hmm. I love that you've created and we're community. saying. Go ahead, you're saying. Oh, and yeah, and we're saying, hey, if, if it's doing this work um, through investing, if that's what, what needs to happen, we, cut, we brought it down to the lowest possible amount one would have to invest for it to make sense for us as a company, um, and we're giving lots of, um, information and referrals out for financial planning work that people need um, and providing financial planning work where it's absolutely necessary to free those assets up. Um, yeah, so the availability really matters to us significantly. We didn't want our investor pool to just be the very wealthy. We wanted the investors to be from a very wide range of um, assets as well. So we feel pretty good about that work. Um, but it's very rewarding to work with individuals on their personal financial situation. And when that was our primary way of working with people, it's very personally rewarding. And our reward comes now in watching, um, in watching the world change. Um, and that's really benefiting a lot more people. But sometimes that can take a bit longer, you know, yeah. than working on one person's financial plan. Yeah. Rachel, thank you so much for your pioneering work. Thank you for doing the inner work um, for all these years, and thank you for your commitment to social justice investing, which is blowing my mind, and I'm so grateful to have found you and to be able to share you with our community. Please share your website, and we'll be linking to all of it, but just share it and spell it, and if there's any final words of wisdom to complete this really beautiful interview? Thank you. Mm. Well, thank you very much for for opening up a space to talk about um, my personal journey where money has been concerned um, and where the firm has been concerned. That is very deeply meaningful to me. Um, I invite 
all the, the anyone who's listening or, or reading the transcript to go to our website. Probably the easier website to get to is socialjusticeinvesting.com. Uh, you can also go to our robashoti.com email address. It's R O B A S C I O T T I.com. And uh, I guess the the last kind of parting words of wisdom don't come from me. They come from Gandhi, which is uh, to be the change that we wish to see in the world. And uh, I believe that that doesn't um, that doesn't stop when it comes to our investments. We can make that happen in all aspects of our lives, including those investment accounts too. And I'm happy to. We're all happy to help make that happen for folks. Rachel, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Barry. Thank you for joining me with this Money Memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you, whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, Please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps, and blends therapeutic, body-based practices with real-life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So... If you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the art of money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.